got to have a crisis management team or some kind of uh, some kind of decision making body ready to go when these type of things happen. And, and typically, that crisis management team uh, is going to span the company. So it's it's one thing to have a have an incident response team, a cybersecurity incident response team, and they're very good at getting the business, you know, getting the the bad guys eradicated and the business back up and running. But the decision making body for everything after that has to be has to span the enterprise. So you're going to have a legal rep. You're probably going to have somebody from the office of the CEO who can make who can make the hard decisions. You're going to have a PR representative. You're going to have uh, somebody that represents privacy if that's not legal. You're going to have a security person. You'll have a cyber person. You might have a physical security person. You might have HR in the room, depending on the type of impacts that ha- are are people related. Welcome to the Defenders Advantage Frontline Stories podcast. I'm Carrie Matry, your host, and today with me is Fred Thiel. Now, Fred's been a CISO in many, many places. Um, so, Fred, please introduce us with, you know, give us a little bit of background and experiences that you've had. Thanks, Carrie. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, currently the Chief Information Security Officer at a company in Australia called Interactive. Um, we do intend IT services and um, you know, cybersecurity is is one of those services that we offer. Previously, I've been uh, a chief information security officer at the uh, for the state government here in New South Wales, taking care of trains, ferries, buses, light rail, etc. Um, so that was uh, that was about three years worth of worth of experience there, um, dealing with a lot of IT and OT type of security things. And then prior to that was uh, the CISO at uh, Velocity Frequent Flyer, which is Virgin Australia's loyalty program for airlines. Interesting. And, and before that, I mean, you came from the vendor side as well, right? I did. Yes. I, uh, I had some experience in HP and IBM, um, also Cybertrust, as well as the uh, uh, funny accent here is uh, I've moved to Australia. I've been here for about 10 years. But um, prior to that was yeah, living in Colorado. And uh, we owned a company that built security operation centers as well. So Wide range of experience across both startup, small to medium enterprise, state government. Excellent. And that background is going to be perfect today because today's topic is really going to be about breaches and the long tail of a breach. And so, you know, with all of your experience, I'm sure you've seen many breaches play out, many incident response uh, activities go on. And so, you know, a lot of people think about cleaning up a breach as, you know, just incident response and just that you know, worst day case scenario, let's get in there for a couple weeks, clean it up and and then out. But those are just immediate actions and they don't think about the long tail. So, you know, tell us a little bit about your experience with the long tail. Yeah, it's um, unfortunately have had some experience with with larger incidents as on on the um, as being a size zone, right? It's one thing if you're if you're in the hot seat, it's another thing if you're a vendor helping somebody in the hot seat. But being in the hot seat, you you do get the scars, and um, the scars are real. They uh, they're good to have, but I think you know it's it's one of those things that just builds character, builds experience, right? So, um, my, my in my experience, some, some of the some of the smaller incidents that you have, kind of day to day, right? If you've got a phishing attack, and the phishing attack you know compromises an end user compute device, 
you know, you might have some EVR tools that prevent that. Um, you can clean it up pretty quickly and you kind of get on with life. Um, the larger incidents tend to really be where the deep scars happen. So you've got, you know, ransomware is a, is a, is a good one. It was at least down here. Um, you know, we had, we had quite a bit of ransomware three or four years ago, four or five years ago, there was, there was a big run in Australia. Um, lots of government agencies were compromised. Lots of private, big private industries were compromised. And so, you know, when you're dealing with stuff like that, um, you train a bit like the military for the incident response and you get your incident response team prepped for everything. But that's only the tip of the iceberg um, in my experience. So you've got the incident response, the technical incident response where, you know, your incident response team goes in, they take care of the breach. And that's really where you do your classic, you know, contain, eradicate and get the business back up and running as quickly as possible. There's a lot of other things that I think we'll dive deeper into as we, as we talk through this, but, um, you know, you've got things like messaging. How do you message internally, but also externally? When do you talk to the media? How do you talk to the media? Who talks to the media? Have you trained those people to talk to the media? Um, often there's it's a madhouse, right? So you get people running around trying to do 15 different things um, all at the same time, and, and, and nobody has their place in the, the wider incident response. So, so controlling that and having a good controlled environment to, to perform that messaging is really important. You know, you've got to understand the type of data that you've lost. You've got to understand your obligations, um, especially with a lot more regulation and insurance companies getting involved. You've got to have a decision-making body internally. There's a lot of different components to a large incident response that, you know, once you get past that technical incident response and you get the business back up and running safely, there's, there's months and months of other things depending on the type of incident that you've got to consider. Well, I think when we were talking before, you you gave a, a time period of how long an incident response long tail takes. I mean, it was it was shocking to me. I'll I'll let you talk about how long it can actually take. Yeah, there's it varies depending on a lot of different variables, as you might imagine. But you know, I've been a, a part of incidents that you know the cleanup. Let's take ransomware for instance. The cleanup can take anywhere from you know two to four weeks, two to five weeks, depending on how good your backups are. Um, that's the key, by the way, there's only two ways to recover from ransomware. One is pay the ransom and there's no guarantee. Plus you're funding criminal behavior, which is, you know, has questionable ethics. Yep. Um, and then the other one is restore from good backups. And the key there is good backups, right? So you don't want to restore ransomware infected backups. So you've got to have a way to make sure that those backups are immutable, unchangeable, encrypted, available to, to take care of things. Right. Um, so depending on all of how, how well you're prepped for that particular kind of situation, you know, I've seen, I've seen incident, the incident long tail, let's call it, as we've been, we've been talking about it, the incident long tail be, you know, months and months, and in fact, 18 months, right? It, but that, that's with huge amount of data loss, um, huge amount of data extortion, you know, back and forth with attackers and that type of thing, right? And you know, like I said before, it's not just the technical piece and, and getting the business back up and running. It's understanding the data that's been lost and that in and of itself, like when you look at an e-discovery, if anybody's ever been part of an e-discovery uh, type of event where you've got to go and troll through a lot of data and understand tags and emails and that type of thing, um, 
you basically have to go through that same type of thing. So if you lose 100 gig of data, you've got to know exactly what's in all of that data. How do you, how do you get a handle on that? You don't just, you know, go to chat GPT and run, run, a, run an AI over it or whatever and say, what data did I lost? Please summarize. Um, you've got to actually know that stuff. Right. Yeah. You got to figure out, um, you know, PII, for example, you know, what, what different regulations do you see in Australia? Because I know they're different around the world. So what, what sorts of regulations are there down under? Yep. Um, I'd say the, the privacy, you know, in, in, in the US, I don't think the privacy regs are as, as strict as they are around other parts of the world. You know, when you look at, you know, look at the UK uh, and Europe, you've got GDPR. I think there's been some ledge passed in, in the House in the US recently, maybe under the Biden administration about, um, you know, stricter privacy laws and privacy controls and that type of thing. Australia falls definitely into the more strict from a privacy perspective. So down here, we've got something called the Australian Privacy Principles. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a set of principles um, to determine whether or not you've, um, during a data breach, you've, that there, whether or not there's a privacy implication with that data breach. So there's things like understanding what harm is if you lose data. So if you lose personal information, for instance, which is a a vague term in and of itself and can be defined multiple ways. Um, let's skip that for the moment. But, um, you know, if you've got personal information, does the loss of that personal information constitute harm to individuals? So that's a very difficult question to answer, right? Because you've got a lot of variables. So if the data you have, for instance, um, is police data, well, that could definitely cause harm to people, right? Because what about people that are on a domestic abuse list or, or have hidden their, their physical address because, you know, they've got an abusive partner or whatever. That can actually, the, the loss of that data can actually cause physical harm to people. Um, similarly, when you're dealing with, you know, OT or operational technology, um, you know, how fast trains go one way or the other and, you know, what direction the tracks are headed, a compromise of that kind of data could cause physical harm to people, right? So there's um, there's some real privacy implications that, you know, loss of data can actually impact people, not only in a, in a mental way, right? You've lost my data, I'm going to be a victim to, um, you know, account takeovers and that type of thing, but also actual physical harm, which often isn't thought about. Right. Well, you know, as you touched on this before, though, it's not just, okay, I've lost some data, but you know, how do you actually figure out what you've lost, who's access it? I mean, what sort of assumptions do you have to make? I go into these things assuming just whatever has been touched has been lost. And often that's not, that's not good enough, especially when you've got legal and insurance companies involved. You can't just say, well, we went through all of our logs and all of these files were touched by an attacker. Therefore, we assume all of it's gone. They want a little bit more uh, definitive proof than that, let's say, which is why you've got to go through the um, the exercise of doing that e-discovery. So e-discovery is really going to, you know, you pump all of your data through a tool that pulls out common words and tags those different types of data with common words. And then you go through a process basically of understanding exactly what type of data in, is in there. And you can do things like tag what you consider personal information to be and the e-discovery tool can go through and 
troll through that data, index it properly so that you can pull out and say, okay, of the 720,000 records that we lost, uh, 472,000 of those have personal information or have been tag uh, tagged with personal information tags by the discovery tool. All right, let's whittle that down. All right, take those 487,000 records and have somebody physically look at them because you have to, you know, tools aren't perfect. They can, they can pull out the majority of what, um, you know, what, what, what you think might be personal information, but at the end of the day, to really verify it, often you have to have a team of people that just look at that and cite each one of those things and give the tool a little bit of feedback to make it searching better. So, you know, in my experience, we've had situations where you've lost a lot of data, you do any discovery, and then you go and get 20 people in what's kind of a service desk type of environment to go and cite each one of those records and put a tick box in a spreadsheet somewhere that says I've cited this record and yes, it contains personal information and it's this kind of personal information. Wow, it's, it's this kind of activity that makes it the 18 month or longer um, long tail make sense. I mean, that's, that's a lot of work needed to be done, but okay. So you, you tag something as PII, you've notified whoever you've notified the uh, reporting regulators, whoever it is. What about the users? Like, what do you have to do to notify any users? Yep. So let's let's just touch on the regulator notification because that often can be um, a thing in and of itself. Because you know the the again the regulations are fairly vague, um, but the the Australian privacy principles give that they're basically giving a thirty day leeway period um, when it comes to notifications. So if you have PI and you've lost a bunch of it, you've got to notify the privacy commissioner. Uh, of the state, and if it's big enough, it'll go to federal. Um, but you've got to actually notify them within 30 days of, of confirming a breach and have all of your data sorted out so that you can talk to the privacy commissioner. In addition, uh, there's just a critical infrastructure bill that was passed down here that includes, um, well, there's an older critical infrastructure bill, but the, the what was just passed through the House um, uh, or through the legislation was uh, additional types of critical infrastructure. So instead of just power and utilities that you would expect would fall under critical infrastructure, you've got additional things like transportation, food networks, roads, schools, hospitals, etc. So over COVID, everybody's realized, well, we have a lot more CI than critical infrastructure than we thought we did. So we've got to pass some ledge. So you've got all these other obligations now where, you know, you've got between 70, uh, 48 and 70, 24 and 72 hours, pardon me, to determine whether or not you've had an incident and whether you need to notify uh, the federal government um, for that critical infrastructure incident. So there's additional obligations and have very strict timelines around it for critical infrastructure. So, you know, hammering all these things out, understanding those obligations is really important before the incident happens, because otherwise you can just imagine the amount of headless chickens running around trying to get things done. So, but once you get through that, I mean, there's still these users out there, right? So not the critical infrastructure bit, but, you know, PII. So how do you even figure out who these people are? Is that the task of those 20 people sitting and checking checkboxes? It is. Yeah. Part of that is, is getting people's full names. So if you're, you know, if you've got a bunch of customer information, um, you've got to understand which customers were impacted how they were impacted. In other words, what data of theirs did you lose? And come up with a plan of how to notify those people. So 
you know, it sounds like an easy task because you just send people an email or you text them to notify, but is that good enough in the event of a, of a data breach? There's a lot of fraud that goes around that, that, you know, mimics data breaches and people are picking up on that and suspect to it. So, you know, as a reputable company, can you alert your customers to a data breach over email and text messaging? Well, a lot of people do. Um, and a lot of people and a lot of companies do that over, over email. I've received several notifications over email over the past 10 or so years. Uh, other companies choose to do things like certified mail. But if you're going to do that and, you know, detail in that letter how what type of data was lost, well, that's pretty, pretty sensitive information, right? So, you know, you're going to send it certified. Uh, certified. Well, what happens if that certified mail never gets picked up from the post office? What happens if the certified mail becomes undeliverable? How do you end up contacting those people? How do you know that the data that you've got is accurate and um, uh, recent? What if they've moved recently? Um, what if their what if their addresses are, you know, on those lists that are supposed to be private? What if they're diplomats? What if they're you know overseas type of uh, military agents? Right? There's all these considerations that you've got to go through to understand how you're going to notify people. And once you have notified, if you don't receive anything back, is that something you can just you just tick off the box and say, "Yep, well, we did our best," or do you continue to try? Do you call them? Do you send somebody to their house? It goes pretty deep. Wow. And it, I mean, is this all stuff that you can kind of plan for before the event? Well, I don't know who said it, but there's probably an old military saying something along the lines of, you know, your plans only, only are good for the first encounter. Um, so in my experience, it's good to have these things at least dot pointed out and have a rough plan for how to, how to tackle them. But, you know, every situation is going to be slightly different. Every situation is going to have a little bit of a tweak to it. So if you've got a rough plan, you can at least modify that plan as you, as you work through all of the specifics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I can, I can also imagine that, you know, users that find out about a breach through the news are then going to be very worried and, and waiting for those emails or certified mails, you know, and speaking of, you know, the news, Breaches are super sexy to the media. You know, they love their headlines around breaches. So do you have any advice on preventing these sorts of leaks to the media? Yeah, I'm, uh, when you say leaks, I'm assuming you, you mean um, basically controlling the information flow and how it is that you talk about what happened to your company as you go out to media. Yes, and making sure that, you know, you don't have an employee who goes and tells somebody who tells somebody who tells the media Hey, this big thing just happened. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is where the old need to know in information security really comes into play. And it's not necessarily for a cover up, but it is to make sure that the messaging is consistent, right? I mean, you've seen a lot of poorly handled data breaches, and a lot of times you look at a data breach as poorly handled because uh, the company will come out and say one thing, the spokesperson will say one thing, and then two days later, they, they turn around and say something completely different. And, and a lot of times that's because, you know, they might not have all the information, but they come out and say, you know, for example, um, a company might come out and say, yep, we've had a data breach, but there's absolutely no indication that any data has been compromised. And then day two, as they go through their investigation, oh, they found some data that's been compromised, and they come out to the media and go, oh, just kidding, 
we've got 472,000 records that have been compromised. Well, that type of flip-flop, you can imagine, you know, you're your reasonable person um, when they read that in the media is going, well, who is this company? Do, uh, do they just not know what's going on? Um, do they not have internal processes to do this? Is my data really safe? Um, all these questions start coming up. So it's really about controlling that message and maybe not coming out and saying definitively that there's been no compromise of data, but that there's an ongoing investigation, for instance. So slight tweaks to wording like that and controlling that is, is really important just to make sure that the right and accurate data is getting out. There's always a lot of hearsay and kind of things floating around when when you um, when you go out to media and everybody wants to talk about it, right? So need to know is key. Well, and I, <laughs> you're thinking about need to know and thinking about all the things that need to be done. It seems like the the group that knows gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, if you got the, the security people, you got data analysis, you got well, hopefully comms, legal, and insurance know not to speak. But, you know, that group gets big pretty quickly. It does. And and I guess that's the other that's the other part of this I haven't really touched on yet, uh, which is you, you've got to have a crisis management team or some kind of uh, some kind of decision making body ready to go when these type of things happen. And, and typically that crisis management team uh, is going to span the company. So it's, it's one thing to have a, have an incident response team, a cybersecurity incident response team, and they're very good at getting the business, you know, getting the, the bad guys eradicated and the business back up and running. But the decision-making body for everything after that has to be, has to span the enterprise. So you're going to have a legal rep. You're probably going to have somebody from the office of the CEO who can make, who can make the hard decisions. You're going to have a PR representative. You're going to have... Uh, somebody that represents privacy, if that's not legal, you're going to have a security person, you'll have a cyber person, you might have a physical security person, you might have HR in the room, depending on the type of impacts that are, are people related. So you have all these people that get together. And, you know, this is part of the planning piece where you say, okay, in the event of a crisis, these 16 people need to know about it. And then you kind of weed those people out as they're not needed anymore. So you, you pair the group back to just the core decision makers. And that's, that's basically set in stone for the life of the incident. You know, those people or their representatives are going to have to make the call on what we do next. And if, you know, the big call is needed by say a board or, or the CEO themselves, then all recommendations come out of that group. Um, I see. Is insurance part of that group or do they kind of get included later? What's your experience with working with insurance? I see insurance as a key stakeholder as opposed to being part of the group. Uh, insurance companies will probably disagree with me on there. They'll, they'll probably say they want to be part of that core group. And the way the insurance industry has gone, in my experience, is that you've got, they want to be involved early, as early as possible. And, you know, to some extent, I agree with that, because especially with a small to medium business, um, you've got, you probably don't have all of the people that you need on staff to take care of what you what you need to take care of where insurance companies have seen this quite a bit and they've got a panel of people that are ready to help so they can give you you know five or six options for incident response they can give you a couple options for doing legally discovery they can give you a bunch of options for doing xyz right and the nice thing about that is if you have cyber insurance then that those companies will work directly with the insurance company very closely 
And when it comes time to, to get reimbursed or to uh, make a claim against your cyber insurance, all of that is already in the insurance company's hands, um, which is really nice. Because if you, if you don't do that, one, you'll probably be offsides with your insurance company. But two, um, all, all of the third parties that you engaged outside of that insurance company are have to, going to have to be assessed. So I learned the hard way, um, you know, in a couple of instances where, you know, we didn't go through the insurance company to start and, um, you know, insurance companies send in, uh, some, somebody called forensic accountants, which is a term that I, that I learned the hard way, but forensic accountants are exactly what they sound like. Um, you know, they go through every statement of work, every invoice, every dollar spent and make a decision on behalf of the insurance company, whether or not that constitutes a reimbursable expense. And that can be very uh, intrusive and um, difficult, right? Well, in your experience, how are they paying out? Do they pay out, you know, your full claims? Do they pay it out over time? How does that work? Yeah, look, I mean, again, depending on how you engage your insurance company, if you do it from the beginning, um, which I recommend you do, um, it makes things a lot easier and more streamlined, right? Um, because everything's sort of taken care of, knowing that the insurance company is going to have to digest all of that information, right? Um, if you take the hard way, um, you know, it could be, it could, could be anywhere from six to 12 to 18 months, right? Depending on how much work needs to be done. And I think it's just like, I mean, cyber insurance is no different than any other type of insurance. When you look at how insurance companies pay out on, um, on say car accidents and that type of thing, they'll assess, you know, the situation and then they make, they look at the total claims and then they pay a percentage of those claims. And it's typically not a hundred percent because there's always things that, don't fall underneath your policy. So for instance, in, in cybersecurity land, um, insurance companies, at least in Australia, won't pay for something called betterment, which is, which is, you know, getting you above and beyond where you were prior to the incident. Insurance wants to get you back up and running to the point that you were, and then everything above and beyond that is your, um, is your responsibility as a company. So if you've got a ransomware incident and you get the company back up and running and, um, you know, you bring in a couple of third parties to do that. And then during all of that, you refactor one of your cloud apps because that's what got hacked. Then insurance will pay all the way up to um, the refactoring of that web website because the, that refactoring isn't isn't where you were before. It's, it, it's making you better, right? So they'll get you back up to where you need to be, but not any further. Well, you've been through a lot and obviously learned from a lot of your experiences and uh you know, sometimes we hear, you know, a breach happens, people expect, well, let's, you know, go after the CISO, blame it on them. Um, other times, you know, you, you definitely need the CISO around for cleanup. So what's, what's kind of your view on that? I kind of think about this whole situation and the whole, you know, being a CISO kind of like, kind of like being a firefighter, you, you know, you pay, you pay taxes and you, you fund a fire department. And nobody likes paying taxes, right? Nobody likes to uh, pay for something they don't get immediate benefit from. Um, and But when you do have a fire and your house is burning down and the firefighter shows up in 10 minutes to extinguish everything and get your family out, well, damn, you're really, you're really, you're really happy they're there, right? Um, and, it, and it's kind of the same thing here. Nobody wants to pay for a security organization um, 
they see it as a as an unnecessary cost until you actually need it, right? And then and then you get to you get to shine a little bit, assuming you've got the security team that you need and you've got a plan and that kind of thing. Um, it also really helps to make sure that I guess to to make sure that the ELT and your board that you've got some kind of FaceTime with them. You know, it it I think if you're if you're a CISO that's never been in front of your ELT or your board and talked about the security program, frankly, and frankly where you are, right? Good, bad, all the warts, everything, um, then they're not gonna understand. They'll think things like, well, I've got a sizer, therefore I'm fine. Whereas you might not be fine. You might have a sizer, but you might have three years of work ahead of you and you know, your website's wide open to the world with vulnerabilities all over the place, just waiting to get hacked. Well, okay, they need to know that. And they need to understand that they need to make an investment in that. But if you're there explaining that, taking them along the journey and, and helping them helping them along, then when the inevitable does happen, you're in a much better situation because they know you're working to make them better. And they know the current state of the of the situation, right? Um, of the security posture. Now, often, you know, people are going to look. Develop those good relationships so that your first encounter with them is not during a, a major event. Okay, last question. In your experience, what has surprised you most about the realities of breach response? A couple of things. Um, you know, when, you, when you've been in the industry for a while, um, you see a lot of things and you think you kind of, you think you've got a good handle on everything that's possible. And there's, there's always surprises lurking in every corner, right? I think with, with breaches and big breaches, what surprised me the most, um, three things really, the, the time it takes to actually go through this and the amount of the number of stakeholders that need to be involved to, to, to satisfy, um, you know, a, a breach type of environment, right? You, you need to get a lot of people on your side. You need to, you need to, to bring a lot of people along the journey. You need to make sure a lot of things like PR and marketing and, and legal are on board with what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it um, so that they can, they can craft their individual specialties in ways that, that help, help the overall cause. Right. So, and that just takes time, right? It takes a lot of explaining. It takes a lot of, um, you know, technical time from your teams, but translating that into whatever the other domains are uh, that you've that you've that you you've gotten the crisis management team. Also, the size. You know, the I always had in my mind that you know big breaches. It doesn't really matter how big the breach is; it's going to be the same kind of steps all along. Therefore, if you have a small breach, it's kind of about the same work as a large breach. But all that goes out the window when you're talking about data. Um, because you got to know the types of data. There's a lot of variables in data. Um, there's a lot of things you've got to satisfy from a from a legal perspective and having assurance around what types of data are lost and that kind of thing. So the size is um, is is a big factor. And then I guess finally, you know, people talk about having executive support. People talking about having board level support. And when the rubber hits the road, when you've got a big breach, you either see that or you don't. And it's really nice to have everybody behind you supporting you saying, what do you need? What can I do to help? Um, let's get through this. We're in it together. And if you, if you don't have that type of executive level support, I can only imagine 
the trials and tribulations you'd have in getting through a big data breach. I mean, it would be, it's a bad situation to begin with, but if you've got no support and everybody's looking at you wanting to cut your head off, then uh, it's just more stress than you need at that time. Right. So really the, the exec support is a real thing there and, and having that and making sure that you've got it prior to a breach is really, yeah. really important. All right. Great advice. Thank you for joining us today, Fred. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us. For all of our listeners out there, please join us next time for the Defender's Advantage Frontline Stories.